Good morning. And I want you all to notice that I walked up here at the appropriate time, as opposed to the last time. I think I was still on Africa time when that happened. My body was still a little whacked out, and so anyway, pastor was so kind to me to look at me with a shepherding face and go. <laughs> so. We're in 1 Peter chapter 3 this morning. Please turn there, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 17, continuing our study of this wonderful book. Thank you for those of you who were praying for us last weekend. We had a Bible conference uh, on the family uh, Saturday and Sunday. It turned out very well. God was very good to us, and it was a blessing to be with a, one of our supporting churches uh, north of Grand Rapids. So thank you for praying for us. We're in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But instead of doing that, instead of being fearful, verse 15, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for, the, for a reason, for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. As Peter wrote this book, believers were being persecuted for a number of reasons. They were sometimes thought of as arrogant haters of humanity, because they wouldn't attend pagan festivals and feasts and parties. They wouldn't party maybe like they used to. Sometimes people today may think similarly, you Christians, you're so arrogant. You won't have fun with us. You won't flirt with us. You won't laugh at our off-color jokes. You won't drink with us. You won't participate, won't enjoy a little recreational marijuana with us. Whatever it is, you won't do the kinds of things we do because you're arrogant. The believers in Peter's day were, were sometimes thought of as traitors to the state because instead of confessing Caesar as Lord and worshiping him, they bowed only to Christ. And by the way, this accusation of treason may be in our futures as well. Let's be prepared for it. They were often thought of as immoral because of the warm and tender love that believers had for one another was sometimes assumed to be sexual. They were sometimes rumored to be blood drinkers because of the words of the Lord's Supper. You see in the book of Acts that believers were sometimes persecuted because the preaching of the gospel minimized the sale of idols, affected whole economies. Along with idol makers, Christianity threatened the livelihood of pagan priests, soothsayers, even sometimes painters and sculptors would lose business because of the things they were creating were no longer attractive to believers. 
The first organized persecution of Christianity occurred during the reign of Nero, who died in A.D. 68. You may recall, threw believers to the lions, to wild animals, crucified them, burned them alive. Both Peter and Paul were Nero's victims. This is all going on. This, these kinds of things are all going on as Peter is writing this book. And he mentions persecution numerous times in this book. Folks, we make decisions every day. This passage addresses the choices that we make when we face persecution and mistreatment for a godly lifestyle. When we face mistreatment, and it's, we all know, it's, it's, uh, it's starting to reach a peak. When we face mistreatment, we can choose to get angry, we can choose to retaliate, or we can make the choice to think biblically and honor the Lord. We can think biblically during these times and honor the Lord during these times. And my understanding of this text, the kind of take-home truth today, is simply this. We need to think rightly. We need to bank on biblical truth when we're suffering for the Lord. We need to have our minds right, thinking correctly, thinking biblically, banking on biblical truth when we're struggling, when we're suffering for the cause of Christ. Let's pray and we'll look at this text this morning. We thank you, Father, for this portion of your word. This is a great blessing, this, this text. We, if we are called upon, Father, in your sovereign plan to suffer for the sake of Christ, we, right now, in advance of that, thank you for the privilege. We want our lives to count for something. We want our lives to count for a great deal. We want to invest in eternity. We, we want um, the gospel to be advanced Christians to be encouraged and edified through our short little lives on this earth. And if you choose to send trials and suffering, even death, for you, we're grateful for it. Give us wisdom, Lord, as we look at this text and, and get a, maybe a better understanding of how we should respond when we're standing for you in a wicked world and being mistreated, persecuted because of it, because of that stand. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So, okay, if we're going to think rightly, you're suffering something in the workplace, you're being mistreated because they know of your Christian stand, you don't hold the party line regarding LGBTQ, et cetera, et cetera, uh, uh, the... the, the uh, Whatever the, whatever the thing in our culture right now. You don't toe that line. You don't think that way. They understand that. You're trying to hold a biblical position. Act biblically. Live differently. And, you are, and you're, you're faced with mistreatment because of that. How do we think at those points? First of all, we have to remember that we cannot truly be harmed. Verse 13, now who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? This is a rhetorical question. The implied answer is no one. Who is there who can truly, actually harm you if you're standing for Christ and you're facing mistreatment, persecution because of that? Who can harm you? And the implied answer is no one. No one can harm you if you are a child of God. 
Now, how is it that Peter can say this? We know from the life and murder of Jesus, from the book of Acts, from church history, and from this very book that believers were facing harm. Those who follow Christ are facing harm because of their stand for Christ. So how can he say this? His point is that the ultimate, in the ultimate sense, no real, no lasting harm will come. Yes, people will mis- may mistreat us, malign us, humiliate us. They may take our livelihoods, uh, our, our possessions, our freedom, our children. They may take our very lives. In the big picture, ultimately, we cannot be harmed. I got a, an email this week from Dr. Timothy Mung, a friend of mine in Myanmar. And he told me that uh, as of February 10th, the government announced a conscription law Anyone eight between the years of 18 and 35 must join the military. And they're just driving around. The military is driving around and pulling people off buses, pulling people out of their homes. How many in this room are between 18 and 35? Raise your hands. Jerry, don't raise your hand. That's wishful thinking. Maybe. You know, half our congregation. Next Sunday, half of us would be gone. Half of you, I'm not in that, that camp, but half of you would be gone in the military, fighting on the wrong side, by the way. Now, Myanmar, it's not just believers, it's everyone, but it's, it's believers as well. So in this life, they may take our livelihoods, our possessions, our freedoms, our children, and our lives. In the big picture, folks, how long are we here? How long will the trial be for? The trial will last a couple days, a couple weeks, a couple months, a number of years. And then there's all of eternity. In the real sense, there's no real harm that can come to us because we have a home in heaven. And we look forward to spending our time in eternity with Christ and with one another. In fact, look at verse 12 of 1 Peter 3, verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. Can anyone really be harmed when God is watching over them and listening to their prayers? One author says, because the readers were under God's watchful care, and no one was able to do, uh, no one was able to do them any real and essential harm. What's the worst they can do to us? Kill us? That's no threat. And so Peter wants us to think of these trials, wants them, the readers, and us to realize these trials, as terrible as they might be, as long as they might take years, as uh, regardless of the end result, death, in the big picture, there's no real harm here. Folks know that. You might lose your job for your stand for Christ. God knows that. He has a plan. He has another job for you. He has another way for you to provide for your family. Secondly, as far as this mindset we need to have, we need to remember that we're blessed people. Verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Andrew just read um, uh, Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12. Blessed are those 
who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are those, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You've got a future. Yes, you're going to be persecuted in this life, maybe, but there's a future. The kingdom of heaven is yours. Blessed are you, while others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. They're going to lie about you, which we'll talk about in a few minutes. Peter references that. They're going to lie about you. You'll do the right things, and they'll say, no, he's doing the wrong thing. She's doing the wrong things. Rejoice and be glad. Why would I rejoice and be glad in the face of persecution? For your reward is great in heaven. We don't, we, we, we normally just think in terms of this life, and we can't. We have to start thinking in terms of the next life, and all that's there for us. And we might have no blessings in this earthly life, which is, of course, wrong. We do. But the blessings that are held out for us, that we'll enjoy in the future, they're innumerable, infinite, impossible to express. He goes on to say, Jesus says, For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. If we're persecuted for Christ, we're in very good company. It seems that Peter is remembering these words here in verse uh, in, in, in this passage. There's an earthly, there are earthly blessings and there are eternal blessings. I want you to notice uh, one, kind of one more of the, one of the blessings. Look at the very beginning of verse 14. But even if, you see those words? But even if, the implication of that is simply you might live for Christ and maybe not face any mistreatment. Even if um, uh, you suffer for righteousness sake and the idea is you may not if you do but you may not so you may live for christ in this world and not face persecution this is another blessing we just keep going we just keep serving we just keep living for god we just keep uh, attempting to to uh, have an impact on the people around us in this ever darkening world and maybe we'll face persecution for it maybe not and if we do we're not worried about this life really anyway. We're, we're thinking about the blessings of eternity. Thirdly, as far as a proper mindset during persecution, times of persecution, we have three alternatives to fear. Verse 14, the very end. Have no fear of them, them being those who persecute you. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. It's natural, by the way, for us to fear those who would mistreat us? Who wouldn't? We all want an easy, secure life. So it's natural. This text is here, folks. This text is here to help us to do what's right in the face of trial. And it helps us to do what's not natural. My natural response to someone in my face or to someone taking my job or to someone threatening my life is fear. This text is here to help us to do what's not natural. Do something else besides what you would normally do. Do something else. Something that unbelievers would never do. 
the, the Greek of this text actually is, the fear of them, do not fear. The fear of them, don't have it. Isaiah 8.13 But the Lord of hosts, him uh, you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. If you're going to fear anyone, and we should, God is the one we fear. Not because he's our enemy. Thankfully he's not. But he is still fearful. God's still terrible in his greatness and majesty. Luke 12, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more they can do. That's the people we're talking about in this text. They may be able to take your, your life, but that's it. That's all they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Let me tell you who you should fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Don't fear the people who can end your life and then they have no more influence. Fear the one who can take your life and then has authority to do, to do whatever he wants with you in eternity. The bottom line here, don't fall into the trap of fearing men. This is hard. A lot of us are people pleasers. We all are, to some extent. We want people to like us. Anyone? Raise your hand. I don't want anyone to like me. Anyone? I prefer if people hate me. Any one of you? No, we all want people to like us. That's just the bottom line. But we can't fall into the trap of fearing men. Their opinion really matters to me. I really want them to like me. I'll do whatever it takes so that they like me. We cannot be that way. He goes on to say, um, end of verse 14, Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. That word troubled is really interesting. It means to shake up, to stir up something. It's used of a crowd that's in an uproar. It's used of water that is bubbling up. It probably speaks of the, I think, the physical results of, of, of an internal fear, uh, physical agitation, shaking, maybe convulsing, mental confusion. We have a word for that or a phrase for that now, as of about, I don't know, 30, 40 years ago. Panic attack. I've seen people have panic attacks. They're so overcome with fear, so gripped by fear of something or someone that they are physically affected, shaking. They're mentally confused. You talk to them and you're trying to get them to look at you and they're just all over the place, confused. I, I've had experience with that kind of situation. I think that's what he's talking about here. Don't be afraid of them and don't let that kind of fear take a hold of you, take a grip upon you, such that you are absolutely you know, affected, demolished. We then have how we're supposed to respond. Verse 14, or verse 15. Don't be afraid of them. Don't be troubled. Notice, but instead... So here's, here's the right response. The right response to someone persecuting you is not to fear them or to be so overtaken by that fear that you can't function. Instead, this is what we do. But, 
Number one, we recommit ourselves to Christ. Verse 15, the very beginning. But instead of that being gripped by fear, instead of that, in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Recommit yourself to Christ. I think that the New American Standard actually captures the point of the Greek a little better. It reads this way. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart. Sanctify Christ. Set Christ aside as your master in your heart. He is the Lord. He is the master. He is the sovereign one. He's the one I worry about. It's his opinion I care about. He's the one I'm trying to please. He's the one I'm trying to serve. Set him apart in your heart as the Lord of your life. If we're going to keep everything in life in proper perspective, including the fear of man, we must make Christ first in our lives. What others might say to us or do to us or think about us, folks, should be irrelevant. I mean, I'm not saying be a jerk. I'm not saying, I'm not saying invite people's disdain. Be sweet, be kind, be gentle, be holy, be righteous. But ultimately, what people say to us, do to us, their opinion of us, should not matter. What matters to us is Christ. What is his opinion of you and what you're doing, how you're living. Someone once said that a man who wants to lead the orchestra must turn his back on the crowd. Well, that's true. And a man, a man or woman who wants to honor God, whose eyes are set on Christ and following Christ, the crowd's behind him. He's not worried about the crowd. He's worried about Christ. His eyes are set on Christ. So first of all, don't fear. Instead of that, recommit ourselves to Christ. Secondly, minister the gospel to others. Our, our next response is ministry. Keep reading verse 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ as the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Do with gentleness and respect. Our stance, folks, our stance toward unbelievers and persecutors should never be passive. Our stance should never be passive. We don't sit back and do nothing when we're being mistreated. We don't just sit there and let it happen. There's a correct response. And the response is not or cannot be uh, you know, anger. What's the response? The Bible and the gospel. That's the response. Notice the word answer there in verse 15. The Greek word apologia. Uh, we get our word apology, apologize. We get those words from that term. This term in the Greek New Testament never meant to apologize. It means, it speaks of a verbal, the verbal defense of something. It's often used in a court of law where there's a verbal defense and the term really has two ideas, I think, here and in our lives. First of all, it does speak of the defense of the doctrines of the faith in a formal setting. So there are times when, when believers will be involved in a debate with an unbeliever, defending the truths of Scripture. 
Other times this word, I think, references uh, a presentation of the gospel in an evangelistic setting. So first of all, when God's truth is being attacked, we stand up for it, we defend it. And if we're going to do that, by the way, we have to know the word of God well. We have to know the doctrines of the word of God well if we're going to defend Christianity. This is why, by the way, there's always some setting in our church, some situation, some meeting where doctrine's being taught, whether it's the growth group's hour or Wednesday night, Sunday morning during the, during the sermons, going through a, a book uh, expositionally. Sometimes Pastor I will kind of stop and talk about a given theological point, a doctrine in the text. Pastor's going to be in the book of Romans soon. My goodness. There's going to be theology floating around all over the place. I can't wait for that. Why? Why would we bother? Let's just look at every text and make it infinitely practical and never talk about theology. Never talk about the doctrines. Doctrine is practical. Infinitely practical. And we need to know the truths of Scripture so we can defend the Scriptures. Also, when someone asks about the Christian faith, or we have the opportunity to bring the Christian faith up in conversation, we should be capable of communicating the gospel accurately and clearly. Let's note some of Peter's terminology here in verse 15. Always being prepared. These words identify a mistake we so often make. We don't prepare. We don't prepare ourselves to give the gospel, and so often, maybe always, we don't give the gospel. We're not ready for it. We haven't thought through. We haven't mentally prepared. We need to be prepared for that opportunity to tell someone about Christ. Effective um, evangelism never just happens. It takes work. Uh, it, It takes thinking, memorizing, rehearsing, Every one of us is responsible to make disciples, and the first link in that chain of making disciples is someone coming to Christ. So every one of us is responsible to be prepared and able to give the gospel. And so we need to think through, okay, I know the gospel, but if I give it to you right now, it's going to be kind of all over the place. Let's talk about Jesus. Jesus died on the cross. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Let's talk about sin first. We can't skip that. So we, you know, we're all over the place in our presentation of the gospel. You think it through in such a way that there's a, 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 an order that people will grasp. God, sovereign one, created all things. He has authority over everything and everyone. Man rebelled against him. Sin entered creation. And then judgment because of sin. But that's not the end of the story. And it could be. That's not the end of the story. Christ came. Lived a sinless life. Bore our punishment, the wrath of God. Became sin for us. And and then rose from the dead. And now if we trust in him, there is eternal life. If we take him as Lord and master of our lives and trust in him, there is forgiveness for sin. And our lives can be of eternal value now, as opposed to just seeking the things of this earth. So you have to communicate the gospel in a way that's 
understandable to people. But if we don't prepare, if you don't think, memorize biblical teaching, truths that will come into play during the conversation you're having with someone, and then even rehearse it. Sit down with another believer. Let's give me the gospel. Oh, you know, I love you, but that was pitiful. If I was unsaved, I would never get saved from that presentation. I love you, but, okay, great, let's fix it. Spend a couple hours going back and forth. Rehearsing, verbally rehearsing. That's what's embedded in these words, always being prepared. Now, I know there's another solution to this whole thing. You're, giving, you're, you're talking to someone, they ask you about Christ, and you call pastor, and you set up an appointment with this person to talk to pastor. We could just do that. Skip all the evangelistic opportunities and just give them to him. No, we can't do that. It's not his responsibility to reach the people in our sphere of influence. It's our responsibility to reach the people in our sphere of influence. I'm not saying you can't get counsel from him. I'm not saying that this unsaved person shouldn't ever talk to pastor. I'm not saying that. But he's not responsible to reach everyone in our world. God's given us context, people. We're responsible to do what we can to meet them. And we have to be prepared. If you're not prepared, get prepared. If you don't know how to get prepared, talk to pastor or me and we'll f- help you do that. Look at the phrase, who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. Peter assumes here that if you live for Christ in a, in a, a hard world and you face persecution the way you should, that someone's going to ask you about the hope. I think it's interesting, Peter uses the word hope here and not doctrine. He could say this, who asks you of the teachings of the Christian faith. No, what are they going to ask you about? In a, in a frustrating, uncertain world, in turmoil, what are people going to ask you about? Why is it that you have hope? Why is it that you're a positive person when the rest of us are ticked? and frustrated and angry. Why are you so different? What is wrong with you? Are you have a mental problem? Are you, on, are you on medication that leads to this? No, I know Christ. Folks, this is one of the reasons we cannot respond to our tumultuous world with open dissatisfaction, complaint, worry, and fear. We can't respond the way unbelievers are responding to all the stuff that's happening. We must respond differently. When you talk to people, you respond differently. When you put stuff on Facebook that the whole world sees, don't respond to a hard life and hard situations with anger, frustration, complaint. Instead, This is what I'm struggling with. God has been gracious. God is good to me. Here's what God has done for me. Even though this is going on in my life, this is what God is doing. Change the focus. When people hear us speak, when they see us function, they should hear and see hope and joy and confidence in God. Our world is increasingly dark, and so much of what's happening sucks the hope right out of people's hearts. You've talked to people, and they just are down and dour and struggling because of, 
I can't make ends meet anymore. I don't have enough money. Uh, our kids in school are facing this kind of weird stuff. I don't know what to do with it and all of these things. And this situation right now in, in our country is sucking the hope right out of people's hearts. We ought to be beacons of hope in a hopeless world. And when we are, the Lord may sometimes use that in people's lives and they may come to you and say, why are you so weird? Let me tell you why. Look at this phrase, do, do it with gentleness and respect. Often people who attack Christianity or who might attack you will do it out of anger and arrogance. And the point is, our response can never be that. Our response must be just the opposite. Our demeanor must be just the opposite of anger and arrogance. They should see something totally different in us. Okay, the third way we respond to, to fear, the third way we respond to fear is by living a godly life. Verse 16. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Notice what we can expect from unbelievers. We can expect them to revile us. They can expect, we can expect them to take the good that we're doing and kind of flip it, turn it into evil. Jesus said this in Matthew. I'll reread some of Matthew. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. They're lying about you. And now we have here this, this idea of reviling your good behavior. I'm reminded of Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. We're in that day now where things that are good are being called evil and things that are evil are being called good, acceptable. Who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. You do the right things and somehow it's going to be twisted into evil things. They did something wrong. They're lying about you. This is what you may face. Doing the right things won't shield us from persecution. Notice also that Peter describes the persecuted believer as one who should keep a clear conscience and continue to live a good life. In other words, we don't respond to mistreatment with mistreatment back. We do the right things. We keep doing the right things. Even though we're facing something sinful, negative, evil, we don't return evil, which we've looked at from this book before. The last thing I want to note here. As far as our mindset during trials, during suffering, we know that if we're suffering for righteousness, it's part of God's plan. Verse 17. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Folks, when we endure suffering for Christ is because God planned it. Let me encourage you to look at the very last chapter of the book of Genesis. Remember Joseph and his brothers? And Joseph said, 
You intended it for evil. Joseph's brothers threw him into a pit, sold him into slavery, and all that transpired after that. Remember that? You intended it for evil. And the same Hebrew word is used. God intended it for good, to save many people alive. Sinners will sin against you, and they intended for evil. God will use that, those things. He intends to use those things ultimately for good. He did in the case of Joseph. And that, I think, is the idea here. If we're being mistreated because of our Christian stand, that's part of God's plan. In eternity past, folks, God decreed that we should live for him in a sin-cursed world. And if we're facing trial, it's because God also decreed that trial or those trials for his good, his, 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 uh, the advancement of his purposes and his glory. And often for our good, our growth. Remember this, folks. Uh, we're not responsible to know the purpose of our trials. We're responsible to face them with godliness. We may never know wh- exactly why this thing is happening. Why these people are doing this. The whys and wherefores, we may never know. But there's a purpose, and we just rest in God and what he's doing. Now, I, I have a question for you. Verse 17, it's better to suffer for doing good, that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Why is, why is it that suffering for good is better than suffering for evil, because of evil? Why is that true? Why is our suffering, because of righteousness, in any sense, a good thing? One author says this, I think he captures it in the context of what Peter's saying, in the context of the rest of Scripture, wrongful suffering, patiently endured, is so remarkable. It becomes a powerful form of witness leading unbelievers to salvation. Wrongful suffering, patiently endured, is so remarkable. Doing the right things and suffering for that is such a remarkable thing that it has an impact on people. This is a little book I've had for years. I've read it twice. John Knox, the hero of the Scottish Reformation. It's a good readable little biography of Knox. And the first chapter starts out with this account. This is kind of the the match that starts the Reformation in Scotland. On the last day of February, 1528, a day of high wind that tossed the sand from the sand dunes on St. Andrew's Links, A heap of logs was built up in the square before St. Salvador's College. There, lashed to a stake in the midst of the pile, with pale cheeks but eyes full of quiet courage, Patrick Hamilton awaited patiently the the touch of the torch to the chariot of fire which would carry his serene spirit to God. When the flames leapt up from... The pile, the priests strained their ears, expecting to hear above the crackling of the fire the words of recantation. I recant, Jesus is not Lord. I'll follow the teachings of the church. That's what they were expecting. What they did hear was little to their liking. O Lord, how long shall darkness overwhelm this realm? How long will thou suffer this tyranny of men? Then followed the prayer of Stephen. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And a long silence fell. 
the beautiful young life, he was but 24, was ended. The bright spirit was wafted home. That's the, the match that started the Scottish Reformation. And God uses persecution of his people to accomplish amazing things. And so when you're suffering for the Lord, bank on the fact that God is doing it. It's in your life for some reason. And rest in God's wisdom. He knows what he's doing. You lose your job, he knows what he's doing. People don't like you. People lie about you. God knows what he's doing. And we know from this text how we're supposed to respond. Let me encourage you to read this text over again. And let's respond biblically. Not with fear, but respond biblically to whatever's, whatever we're facing in our world. Thank you, Father, for this really helpful text, which maybe we wouldn't have applied five, ten years ago, the way we apply it now. Maybe now it's a little closer to home for us. As we see our world has shifted in such a terrible direction, and our stand for Christ, for godliness, for biblical morality, for a biblical view of the family, for a biblical view of sexuality, that in all these ways, if we stand on the side of Scripture and your, your truth, we will stand out. And many people won't like it. And many people will respond negatively. So what we're facing today is new for us. Help us, Lord, to rethink this text over and over, to apply it. Help us to please you in, in our world. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you.